everyone. Our passage this morning is from Mark chapter 27 to verse 38. Sorry, Mark chapter 8, verse 27 to verse 38. Um, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in, the, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Josh Habman. I'm the executive pastor here at Grace. We are continuing in our series called Receiving the King. It is a series on the book of Mark, and if you have not been with us, uh, welcome. Today we are going to talk a little bit about how Jesus interacts with his disciples around this question of who he is and what their response and what our response should be to that, that truth of who Jesus is. We're going to talk about uh, whether it is well with our soul that Jesus is who he says he is. We were, uh, if you were here last week, we sang this hymn by Horatio Spafford, It Is Well With My Soul. Many of you know the story of this hymn, uh, that the author lost all of his financial possessions in the Chicago fire and then lost three of his daughters to a shipwreck, and, and yet he wrote these words. Uh, he wrote these words about whether or not who Jesus was was able to sustain him in a time of deep trial. And this is from the last verse that we sang that is traditionally sung. And it says, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. So I'm looking forward, God, to the day when all the things that I've believed come true, when I can see them, when they're real. When the clouds are rolled back as a scroll and the trump resounds and the Lord descends. And that all sounds like good stuff. It all sounds like Horatio Spafford is leading us into a moment of joy and exaltation and Jesus is returning. This is great. This is good news. And then he follows it up with, even so. Which is kind of like saying, even though all of this is happening, it is well with my soul. And that's an odd sort of statement, an odd sort of inclusion. Why would he say even so at that point? And it's because 
it's because Horatio Spafford knows, many of you know, that it is no small thing for Jesus to return. That while it is true, while it is true that there is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation, that we do need to accept him. We do need to reconcile ourselves with him. And so him coming back is not just a glorious and wonderful thing if we're not in right relationship with him. And so Horatio Spafford is able to say, it is well with my soul. And before we're done today, I'm going to ask you to ask yourself the same question. Is it well with your soul? Are you okay with that? Are you looking forward to the day when Jesus returns? Is that something that you want? So people are talking about who Jesus is. Jesus is talking about a new kind of life. This is what's been happening in Mark. And he's been demonstrating, he's been showing what kind of life he has in mind for his disciples, for those who would follow him, for those who would know him and love him and serve him. He's showing them, right? He is healing people. He is walking alongside those who are sick and those who are broken. And he is demonstrating what it means to live this new kind of life. So that's what Jesus has been about in the book of Mark. And now here... There is a request. In this passage that, uh, that we heard this morning, there is a request for the disciples to say, who, who do you say that Jesus is? All the people are talking. There's lots of buzz. Who do you say that he is? So we're going to ask you, I'm going to ask you the same question this morning. Who do you say that Jesus is? And then we're going to talk about that rebuke. It's pretty famous. If you know anything about the Bible, you've probably heard this story that at some point Jesus calls Peter one of his closest friends, his disciples, he says, get behind me, Satan. doesn't really call him Satan, but he says you are behaving like the accuser, right? That's a pretty famous passage. We're going to talk about that rebuke. And then we're going to talk about our reality, that there are lives and souls for sale. And there is that bit at the end of this passage that we read this morning where, where Mark says, look, this is, this is the reality. This is what it's like, that either you're going to pay with your life now or your soul forever. So decide, decide which you would rather have. So that is the scope of the passage. That's where we're going to go this morning. Would you please pray with me and for me as we begin? God, thank you for this word from you that you are Lord and that you are God and that you are the son of the living God, that you want to come into our hearts and our lives and that you want to make your home there. Thank you for all of this. Lord, help us to understand what it means when you tell us to think on the things of God and not the things of man this morning. Help us to understand what it means that you would have us give up our life now so that we could spend eternity with you. Lord, this is a hard word for us. We don't usually like it. We don't want to hear it. I pray that you would soften our hearts to you this morning, that we might know you better, that we might serve you better, Lord. And God, I pray that you would meet us in our brokenness this morning because some of us don't feel capable even of hearing this word from you. Help us to follow you well, I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. So Jesus is walking with his disciples. They're going to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. A lot of times when we see these notes in scripture about locations, about uh, geography, it really doesn't make much sense to us. So where is Caesarea Philippi? It's north. It's in the northern part of Israel. And it is a place where there is a lot of pagan worship. There's a spring there uh, that flows out of a cave. And as a result, for many years, even in the time of Jesus, for many years, there's been lots of pagan 
pagan worship there. So there are temples of a variety of kinds to uh, foreign gods, right? And it is an active center for pagan worship. And so it is likely that, it's not said here in scripture, but it's likely that as they're walking on the road to this place, what they're talking about is the places that they're going to see, the people that are coming to those places to worship. They're probably having a conversation about how there are people worshiping all different kinds of gods. It is likely that in that sort of environment, Jesus, in that sort of conversation, Jesus would say to his disciples, and who do people say that I am? Lots of people talk about all these different gods. Who do people say that I am? So they have this back and forth. And the disciples tell them, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. And then Jesus says, yeah, but who do you say that I am? You guys, my friends, my disciples, those people who are following after me, those people who have decided to commit their lives to me, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, he's the spokesperson for the disciples, right? He speaks up and he says, you're the Christ. That's how it ends here in Mark. But if we read the same account in Matthew, he adds, you are the Christ. He says, you are the son of the living God. And so this is, this is the testimony from Peter, the testimony from the disciples. And Jesus charges them to tell no one about him. He's not ready yet. If we keep reading in Mark and as we go through Mark, you'll see that he has a plan for how he wants this information rolled out uh, with his disciples and to the people. He's not ready for everybody to know yet. When people hear that Jesus is the Christ, when they hear that he's the son of the living God, he wants some other things happening. So he's not ready yet. He says, don't tell anybody yet that that's the case. So he asks his disciples this question. I'm going to ask you this question. Who do you say that Jesus is? It is common. It is popular even today for Jesus to be recognized as a great teacher. And that has been the case since he was alive, since he walked on the earth. He's still alive, but since he walked on the earth. So Jesus is walking on the earth. People are automatically recognizing him as a great teacher. They're saying, that guy knows something that's worth listening to. And so he has followers for that reason. People recognize that he is a prophet. The whole Muslim world recognizes that Jesus is a prophet. Lots of people call him a prophet. But Peter and the disciples are saying, no, you are more than that. You are the Christ, the Christ, the Messiah, same word. It means anointed. It means chosen by God to save the nation of Israel. And that's what they understood that they were waiting for is a Messiah, somebody anointed by God, somebody chosen by him to lead them to salvation. So they're looking for that. They're hoping for that. And they also want, they also want him to be king. Now, the God part, they're not quite sure about yet. They don't know about that yet. But that's who Jesus reveals himself to be. That's who he says he is. So who do you say that he is? It's important. If you say that he is a teacher, everything that follows is worthless. If you say that he's merely a teacher, if you say that he's just a prophet, everything that comes after is is worthless. Don't listen to it. But if you say that he is anointed by God, chosen by God to lead you to salvation... If you want him to be king, then keep listening because there is more to come. Jesus has some things for you. But understand that who you say he is is important. And that Jesus wants his disciples to understand this, that they can't talk about him the way they talk about anybody else. You have to think about Jesus as something wholly other, wholly different than everybody else. Otherwise, none of this is going to make sense. Because here's where he goes from that. 
He begins to teach them that the Son of Man, which is a title that he claims for himself, it's a title that they're familiar with from the Old Testament. They've seen Jesus called this, not Jesus specifically in the Old Testament, but the Messiah called this title, Son of Man. In Ezekiel and other places, the Son of Man is the person who is representative of the Messiah, the anointed one. So Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed, and after three days rise again. So understand that the disciples have all just agreed, yep, you are the anointed one, you are the Messiah, and they think that that means that right now or pretty soon, He's going to become king over the nation of Israel and he's going to rule. They're going to kick the Romans out. The nation of Israel is going to flourish. It's going to be like it was in the days of David and Solomon. It's going to be amazing. They can't wait. That's what they think is going to happen. And now Jesus is saying, listen, here, guys, I am, I am the Messiah, but I have to die. I have to be, I have to be rejected. I have to be killed and then I'll rise again. And that just sounds like nonsense to them. Right? Imagine one of your friends coming to you and they say to you, who do you say that I am? And then you just tell them their name because you know who they are. Right? And then they say something to you like, listen, um, the, the Congress people, the senators, they're going to reject me. The president is going to reject me. And then I'm going to be killed. But I'm going to rise again after three days. Right? You would call a doctor for your friend. If your friend said that to you. And Jesus' friends have a similar response. Right? Peter rebukes him. He's like, no, Jesus, what are you saying? Stop. That's wrong. You're going to be king. You're the anointed. You're the Messiah. You just confirmed to us that God has given us this knowledge that you're the Messiah. Don't talk about yourself dying. That's, that's wrong. Don't do that. And Jesus responds by rebuking him. He says, get behind me, Satan. Remember, Satan is a title. It means accuser. He says, stop accusing me. Mitzi this morning in her testimony talked about feeling accused, about how Satan can even use the scripture to accuse us. We see that happen with Jesus and Satan when Jesus is tempted, right? He tries to use the very words of God to accuse God. God's like, no, you can't do that. That's not the truth. And so Jesus does the same thing here with Peter. He says, that is an accusation that is wrong. He says, get behind me. And he says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is very important for us this morning. If we have acknowledged that Jesus is the Christ, if we have said, he's the Messiah, he's the anointed one, he's the one who's going to save us, then we have to also acknowledge that what he says is more important than what we say. What he desires for us is more important than what we desire for ourselves. Peter and the rest of the disciples desire for Jesus to be elevated. They want him to be king. They want him to lead Israel. That's, that's a good thing, but it's not the best thing. It's not the thing that God has planned. So he rebukes them. He says, you are thinking of the things of man. God chooses a Christ, an anointed one, a Messiah who suffers. And they're thinking, you know what? It would be great if we had some comfort. We've been suffering already. The Romans have been oppressing us. We would like to have some glory now. We would like to have some authority now. We would like to have our nation elevated now. And Jesus says, no, I'm going I'm to have to suffer and die. God chooses self-sacrifice. 
The disciples, they want honor. They want material abundance. They think if Jesus is the anointed one, if he's the Messiah, then he'll bring these things that they've been lacking, right? He'll bring prosperity. He will bring wealth. They won't have to pay tribute. All of the time throughout uh, Romans, the Roman occupation, right? They're constantly paying tribute to the Roman soldiers, to the Roman governors, to the tax collectors. Like, it would be awesome if we could just keep what we make, what we earn, And Jesus says, no, I'm going to actually ask you to sacrifice yourself, just like I do. And then God chooses a new heaven and a new earth, and mankind just wants the pleasure now. And I think that we would all be honest to say that we also want pleasure now, right? We are looking at uh, the gluttony holiday. Everybody ever know what the gluttony holiday is? Right? Thanksgiving. When we, when we have eating competitions, sometimes just with ourselves, and we want that to be for all time. We want that to be for every day. Like Thanksgiving is great. Let's look forward to that. Let's get together. Let's have a bunch of food. We'll celebrate. It'll be wonderful. And you know what? Let's do that again in like three weeks for Christmas. And let's figure out maybe how we could do it again in February and try again in April, right? Like We love this stuff. This is great. Abundance is our friend. We want it more and more. That is a thing of man. God wants us to celebrate. Don't hear me wrong. God wants us to have good things, but not for their own sake, for his glory. It's different. He wants us to have good things because he knows what's best for us. He made us. He understands what's truly beneficial for us. But what they want, what the disciples want, what we're tempted to, to run after is just a good thing right now. Just whatever is going to be pleasurable, whatever is going to give us joy in the moment right now. And that could be any number of things. For some of you, it is truly bad stuff. Some of you are running after bad things that give you pleasure right now. And you know it. You know what they are. I have been there. I have done that. I know exactly what that looks like. Something that is going to give me pleasure in the moment that I have no business searching after. But some of you also run after good things by themselves. They're good. They're, they're, they're nice things even, right? They're loving your family or having family time that's close, that's uh, valuable. It's a good thing in and of itself. But you want it more than you want Jesus. You want it more than you want everlasting life with him. You're willing you're willing to sacrifice your soul for that good life right now. So sometimes it's even a good thing that you're willing to put in place of Christ. Peter, Peter is putting a good thing up on the, up on the block. He's saying, Jesus, no, look, I want you to be God's anointed. I want you to be the Messiah. And Jesus says, yes, I am, but not the way you think. Yes, I am God's anointed. I am the Messiah. God has called me, but God has called me to suffer. God has called me to give of myself. And God has called me to make a new heavens and a new earth. Not this earth. This earth is passing away. That's the thing of man. Think on the things of God. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples. So it's not just his disciples, right? There are other people around calling the crowd to him of the disciples, he says to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And he asked this question, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The answer is nothing. 
But look at what Jesus says. He says, if anyone would come after me, what does that mean? That means be my disciple, right? A disciple is somebody who follows a teacher. That's what a disciple is. And so he has disciples already. And so he is definitely saying to his disciples, but he's also saying to the larger crowd around him, he's saying, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to come after me, take up your cross and follow me. Understand he has not gone to the cross yet. They don't even know what he's talking about three verses back when he says, the son of man has to suffer and die and then rise again. That totally went over their heads. If you've been in church any number of years or even two or three times, you probably know that Jesus goes to a cross. You know that he dies on a cross. So this verse makes sense to you, kind of, because you understand that that's where he's headed. They had no idea. And so he is saying to them, you should expect death if you're going to follow me. Not because, not because I want to torture you, not because I want to put you through pain, but because I want the gospel to go forth. I want the good news to go forth. And this is the best way to do it. This is very hard. It is very hard to look at self-sacrifice, at suffering, and say that's the best way forward. I was talking to a friend this week, and he was asking me this question a couple of different ways. If this is the best way forward, why does it involve so many innocent people, apparently innocent people, dying? Why does it involve children getting cancer? And why does it involve people who've done nothing wrong, apparently, on the outside, they've, they've done nothing wrong. Why do they have to get hurt? If that's the best plan, why does it have to look this way? And the answer I gave him, which is the answer I'll give you, is that if we trust that God is who he says he is, that he made the universe, that he ordered the stars even, then we have to be willing to trust that he knows better than we do. And that's not satisfactory for some people, for some of you perhaps. You say, I am finite, I am a, I'm a limited individual, I'm going to die sometime in my 70s or 80s. That's true of me, but I could think of better ways of doing this than God. I could save more people than he has. We can't. We cannot order our own lives. Anybody get an A-plus in ordering their own life? We don't know. And so we do have to trust the things of God over the things of man if we're going to follow Jesus. And that will be difficult. That will be hard. I'm going to give you some hope before we end today about why it's still good to do that, but it will be hard. It will be a challenge for you. But Jesus asked this question to orient his disciples to help them to understand their reality because this is the reality that there are lives and souls for sale. He says, either you can sell your soul forever and gain your life now, or you can sell your life now and gain your soul. And what does he mean by that? What does it look like to sell your soul and gain your life now? It, it's a game of inches. You guys have probably all heard folk tales or stories of, of uh, musicians who go to a, a crossroads and they sell their soul to the devil so they can learn how to play an instrument, right? You've, you've heard those sorts of fantastic stories. That, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about every day, every moment, day by day, choosing this life right now, pleasure, safety, security, the things that I can grab onto and hold onto for myself, choosing that 
again and again and again and again and saying, yeah, God, I know what you want for me, but I'm not choosing that. Yeah, God, I hear you saying that the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Anointed One, has to suffer, that he has to die, that he'll rise again, but that sounds like a long time from now. I don't even know if I can wait that long, so I'm going to get what I can right now. That's what it looks like to sell your soul, to gain your best life, any life, right now. It's just a game of inches. Every day, a little bit more. I'm just, I'm just going to give away my soul because I want this pleasure for this moment. So for some of you, it is how you talk to your spouse. I want my spouse to just respect me. So I'm going to tell them what will make them respect me. And you lose your soul a few inches at a time. And some of you, it's your job. You know that you don't need to work 60, 70 hours a week, but you think that maybe they will like you more. And so you put in hour 65, hour 66, because maybe then your job will reward you with honor and with wealth. And it never does. And you sell your soul inch by inch. And so Jesus says, sell that, quit that. Get rid of all of that best life now stuff because I want to live with you forever. Not because you need to do this in order to be saved, but because you have been saved. You don't have to do this anymore. You don't have to work yourself to the bone hoping that somebody notices and hoping right, that your spouse will respect you or love you the way you want to be loved because that's never going to happen. But I love you right now. And I have given you everything right now in myself. That's the thing of God. Stop thinking about the thing of man. So there is a cost. Like I said, not to be saved, but because we're saved. There is a cost. Jesus is calling to all of you. If you are here today and you are listening, he is calling to you. How do you know? Because you're here. He is calling to all and following is depending on God's will and not our own. That's what he's saying. So the cost is giving up your own will. Brooks talked about this last week. He referred you to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Well-known verse. Many of you have this memorized, right? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. This is truth, and that's what it means to follow. It means not trusting your own understanding, but leaning entirely on God. So there is a cost, right? You have to give up. And the disciples gave up homes and families and jobs and much more. All of the disciples except for John, all of the 12 except for John, die prematurely because they're following Jesus. And John suffers many things before he dies, right? So it's not like John doesn't suffer. He just doesn't die prematurely. He dies an old man. But all of the disciples die prematurely from following Jesus. And all of them gain everlasting life. Understand that when you give up the things of this world, when you stop thinking about the things of man as the most important things, what you're gaining is everlasting life. And this is what Jesus is trying to get his disciples to understand is that all of those things that they want, even the good things, they're not going to satisfy. They are just for now and they are going to end when this world ends. And so he wants them to have something that goes beyond, something that lasts, something that's eternal. 
He's trying to lead them to something that's eternal. So, I said, if you were here, this is for you. You're being called. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you know who he is? Have you read about him? Have you listened to him? If you've been at Grace any number of weeks, you know who Jesus is because we tell you. And Peter rightly recognizes Jesus as the son of the living God. So that's who he is. Are you going to choose his will over your own? Or are you going to continue to choose your will, a death by inches every day, say, God, I think I know better. If you give up this life in exchange for eternal life, there is a cost, but the price is worth it. What does this look like? Jesus says this, he says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Both questions, the answer is nothing, right? There's nothing that we can give that will save our souls. And then he, he includes this kind of strange statement here. So it's, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. What is that all about? Well, I, we've got two references here we need to check out quickly. Romans 1. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn to Romans 1, turn to Romans 1. Because Paul articulates well what it means to not be ashamed. And then in Hebrews, we'll see further what it means to not be ashamed of the gospel. So Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Understand, this is a faith question. Do you trust God? Do you trust Jesus to be who he says he is and do what he says he does? This is not a works question. This is not, are you doing the right stuff? It's, do you believe Jesus is who he says he is? And then are you choosing to follow him? Turn over to Hebrews. We'll look at what Hebrews says here as well, because in Hebrews chapter 11, we get another picture of what it looks to live, looks like to live by faith. So in Hebrews chapter 11, there's a whole list of people. It's called the Hall of Faith chapter by many because it describes all of these people who have lived faithful lives. And then in verse 13, it references those people. It's pointing back. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. So this is all, all about people who have died before Jesus comes, right? And they have not received eternal hope and salvation through Jesus yet, when they die because they haven't seen Jesus come, die and be uh, buried and raised yet. But it says, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. In other words, having given up this life now. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. In other words, looking to the future. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. And therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. So Jesus says here, he will be ashamed of those who reject him. And it says in Hebrews that he is not ashamed of those who live by faith and sell this life that they might gain their soul with Christ. 
So that's the challenge that's being put before you. That is the challenge that was put before all three of the folks who were baptized this morning. Will you recognize that Jesus is who he says he is? Or will you prefer the things of God to the things, or will you prefer the things of man to the things of God? If you recognize that Jesus is who he says he is, then follow him, trust him, obey him, believe him, because here's what's coming, right? A day when your faith will be made like sight, a day when the the clouds will be rolled back and a day where you'll have the opportunity to say, it is well with my soul or, oh, it is not well with my soul. But know this too that Christ pays the cost. In Colossians 1, I'm not going to turn there. You should read it. It talks about all of the ways that Jesus is reconciling the world to himself, the way his shed blood is making peace. So while I have said that this is a choice before you, understand that there is no work for you to do just for you to believe, just for you to repent and say, I don't want to sin anymore, Lord Jesus. I do not want to choose a death by inches where I'm constantly selling my soul to gain some good thing in this moment. I want you and I want everlasting life and I want my hope to be in a future country, the new heavens and the new earth. And understand that Jesus, who has paid the cost, is also going to make peace in this life. Yes, you are going to suffer in this life, but also there will be physical healing. And there will be redeemed hearts and lives and he will conquer death and he will guarantee everlasting life. So if you're going to give thanks for something this week, give thanks for that. Amen. Amen. Don't give thanks for Turkey. It's terrible. (laughs) Just kidding. But do give thanks for this, that Jesus paid the price. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you because you have paid the price. You are good, Lord. And you are so much better than anything that we would choose for ourselves. Lord, we desire to fill our lives with so many good things. We want right now to be free from sickness and to be free from pain and to have wealth and to have homes that are strong and sturdy and to have children that love you. We want so many good things and those are not bad things to want, Lord, but they're not going to last but you have promised us everlasting life with you. You have promised us, Lord, home and family and health that never perish or fade. Please let us cling to that more than the things of this life. Lord, I pray that we think on the things of God and not on the things of man, that we would not be willing to take what's less just for pleasure in the moment. Lord Jesus, help us to be thankful this week as we remember what you have done and how you have enabled this everlasting life. Pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. This morning, as we leave, I want to encourage you to do something with this information. Talk to somebody here at Grace. Talk to one of the people sitting next to you. But do not be content to do nothing. Have a good week. Go in grace.